lunch and we are going to start this morning. And so come on in, um, take a seat. And I want to start with just a quick announcement. For those of you that um, are moms and have your kids in training ground, this is that time of the year. And by golly, it's going to be I think they said in the 70s by the weekend, crazy. And so when we do this, it just breeds things and we get kids and women that are sick. And so we're just reminding you that if you um, have a sick child or no, we're sick this week, we're not gonna make it to Bible study. We're gonna remind you, ask you to remember to email at trainingground at watermark.org and let that staff know. That just helps us manage that resource so we don't have extra workers with no kiddos to take care of. And that will really help us and thank you. And so let's just start the morning um, by turning it over to the Lord. So join me as we pray. Father, I just thank you. Wow, for um, this last Wednesday in January, I can't believe it. Where does time go? Um, Thankfully, it all lies in your hands. And so we just ask you to prepare our hearts now that we might hear what you have to say, that it would be an intimate and personal message for each one of us um, today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you've checked your calendars lately, but if you haven't, let me alert you that Valentine's Day is two weeks away. Now, if you've gone into any store, you would know that. No question there. If you come into my house, you would know that because I love to decorate for whatever holiday is coming. What a commercial boondoggle for someone to set aside a day so that we could declare our love for one another. But boy, has it been prolific and it's done really well. When I think of Valentine's Day, I'm taken back to elementary school and we had those little white bags and they hung on the lockers or maybe they sat on your, on your desk and you went in and you were so excited and maybe you had a little sack too with those little one things that, you know, you stuck one in everybody's box and maybe if you were lucky, somebody gave you, actually in my day, they didn't come in a little cello wrap, they came in a box and you got sweet tarts, something sweet to eat. And that was really something extra special besides just that stock card. Well, I did a little research. It's very interesting, the history of the sweet tart. Oliver and his brother Daniel, Chase, um, set aside a company. They began making sweets in the 1800s, around 1860. They found that the ones that were cut in the shape of the heart sold way better. So they kind of let all the others go, founded a company called the New England, don't look at that yet, not yet, founded a company called the New England um, Confectionery Company. It is called Nico to this day. And in 1860, they quit. They quit Um, cutting out shapes in anything other than hearts. They miniaturized them, and Daniel thought, let's print some words on them. And there you have today's modern sweet tart, which again looks like this. I arranged them on my kitchen counter in a giant heart, flipped them over. They They gypped me, because some of them you can't even read, so they're not what they used to be, but there you go. Sweet tarts, and that, what's interesting is that the words they print on them are actually a reflection of our culture. Now, look at this other chart. Interesting. In the 1800s, the words printed on them were poetic and courtly, like, may I see you home after the circus? (laughs) What? (laughs) 
Please send me a hair, a lock of your hair by return mail. Wow, your lips are like a rose. There we have the poetry. 1900s, they got a little more bossy and definitive. Be mine, kiss me, marry me, the one I love. In the 50s, they went to the rock and roll side of things. Hepcat, I don't even know what that means. Find a lady who lived then and ask her. Hot dog, sugar pie, yak yak. Again, what in the world? 1990s, they became a little snarky. 1-800-CUPID, as if, fax me, I actually found some that said that, or let's do lunch. And now we have, of course, Tech Talk, Pound Love, Holla Atcha, TXT Me, and Sweet Tweet. Wow. I'm telling you, now you're probably saying, what in the world does all of this have to do with Exodus 19 and 20? Where in the world is she going? And here's where I'm going, ladies. When I read Exodus 19 and 20, I was overwhelmed with God's love for the nation of Israel. You see, his kind of love makes the love between best friends, between family, between husband and wife pale in comparison. God loves Israel so much that he is going to make another covenant with them. Now, why do I say another? Well, Nika talked about this last week. She took us back to the book of Genesis. This isn't the first covenant. He made that in Genesis 12. He repeated it in 15. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. He's told Israel, I'm going to make you, told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. That covenant holds to this day and it marks Israel, sets them apart from every other nation on earth. So that was the first. This is the next covenant that he makes with them. Now, covenant um, comes from a Hebrew word called bereth, and it means a legally binding agreement that um, spells out the relationship and responsibilities between two or more parties. Biblical covenants can be unconditional, that's what the Abrahamic covenant is, or they can be conditional, And that's what we see here today. If you do this, then I do that. That is a conditional covenant. And so today, I hope you walk away with this knowledge that God is crazy about Israel and you. And like any loving father, he wants a deep, intimate relationship with you. And he will stop at nothing to get your heart your whole heart. And so when I looked at this covenant in these two chapters, I saw three things that God is going to require of his people Israel. And this is what, this is, forms the, the um, roadmap for where we're going today. And here are the three things. Number one, he's going to ask them to prepare themselves. Because you see, They've never been loved the way God's about to love them. He then asks them to present themselves before him because you see God's holy and the fact of the matter is we're not, none of us. And then the last thing he's going to do is ask them and us to proclaim it because that's what part of being his child is all about. So the first one, prepare yourself. As you open your Bible in Exodus 19, I thought in those first 15 verses, you're going to see some very specific things that God asked Israel to do to prepare to meet him. And he does this on the third day, over three days. And he emphasizes that over and over again. Now, for the first time, it hit me. And maybe that's because I'm getting closer and closer to 60, but I was shocked at what I realized Moses did. So let's stop a moment. How old is Moses at this point? Anybody? 80. 
80 to 81, give or take a few months here or there. That's, that's Omo. That's where he is in life. And what does he do in these two chapters, ladies? He is going to go up and down and up and down and up and down this mountain three times. If you didn't read it, read it again. Do you know anything about that mountain? He's, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. That mountain, I did a little research. Here's a picture. There she is. How about that? Up and back three times in a day. It is a 7,427 foot mountain. Okay, I'm not super great with math, but here we go. 74 up, 74 back. We've done a 14er. Oh, once, that's not good enough. How about again? Another 14er and another. That's what Moses does. Why? Because he is God's, he is his mediator. He is communicating something so special and so precious. So talk about prepare yourself. He did. He prepared Moses and he's going to use him. And that's what he wants to do with these people. What does he want them to do to prepare? Number one, He wants them to know that they are his special treasured possession. I love the language there. It's uh, it's vivid. He's reminding the people what he's done in the past, and they need to be reminded just like I do. And then he uses the beautiful picture of an eagle. And I love that. It's often used in scripture. One of my favorite verses is in Isaiah where he talks about mounting up on wings like an eagle. And so this is a great visual for us. And do you know how a mama eagle teaches her babies to fly? Well, what she does is when they're about there, ready, she knocks them out of the nest. And as they go racing to the earth, trying to like figure out what to do with these two things they've got, she swoops under them. And what does she do? Catch them on her pinions, racing skyward again to simply tip them over and do it again, over and over until they finally figure out, oh, I got them too. I can use them too. What a loving parent. Again, just like God. And what he does and he goes on to do is communicate this truth to them. I love you so much. I want you, you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, now wait a minute. Wait, aren't these the same people who just not very long ago were like, we want to go back. Take us back. Take us back. And by the way, I don't like the menu. I don't like what you're serving, God. I don't like that either. And um, they just seem to have been grumbling and complaining all along the way. Are these the people he's saying, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Absolutely amazing that God would declare that kind of love for this kind of people. And yet he does the same thing for you and for me. That is special. That's what he calls us, a special treasured possession. But I think my favorite part of this whole thing is how the people respond. And what do they say? Oh, oh, oh yeah, Mo, absolutely, we'll do it. Everything you ask us to do, sign us up, we're all in. What silly Israelites. It ain't gonna be long before those words start ringing really, really hollow. But at the moment, isn't that how we all are? Yeah, sign me up, oh yeah, oh yes, 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 I'm gonna do it, all of it, all. Circle that word, all. And then the second thing God asked them to do to get ready is you gotta come clean to meet with me. That's what he asked him to do. And here I kept thinking about confession, although that's not mentioned. It's a tenet of the Christian faith. It simply acknowledges that we, are, we got junk in the trunk and we need to be cleaned up. And David knew this better than anybody else. Search me, O oh God, and know my, what? My heart, 
my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me from Psalm 139. You see, what confession does is it shows humility and it shows dependence, not on ourself, but on God, someone outside us. I've got to tell you though, in all my Christian walk, I don't think I've ever physically done what is prescribed here in purifying myself to meet with God. Clean my clothes and no sex. And by the way, sex isn't a problem. Don't take that away from this. God created it. He made it. He's simply asking us them, the Israelites, and us at times to set aside, to abstain for a time. Why? So we can concentrate ourselves and focus on him. We do this in another way. It's called fasting. We do it with food, where we refrain from something. It could be food. It could be an activity for a time. Why? To recenter, refocus. So physical actions actually help align our heart so that we can be prepared to meet God. Wow, incredible. Now, one of the pictures God uses in scripture often to talk about the relationship and the love he has for us, the church, is marriage. It's a beautiful picture. And we here at Watermark and God take marriage very seriously. When our daughter was, um, she really never dated until college and a young man came knocking at the door and She knew enough to say, you got to talk to my dad. She was a freshman at college, but yes, this young man came and talked to Kyle. And Kyle said, that's great, John. I'm so excited that you want to date my daughter. And I'm going to do everything possible to prepare you to be a great husband, whether for my daughter or for someone else. And to do that, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to start meeting with you. I'm so excited to get to know you better. And in that, I'm going to ask you some questions. And of course, they were um, pretty broad, pretty general. He got to know John. And then what happened to the big old broad questions? They started getting ooh, a, little, a little more focused, a little more in, intimate, a little more invasive, all the way up to the time he asked John a particular question about his own purity within his own body and how was it going with his daughter. And by the way, if you say, oh, we're kind of struggling in that area, that is not an answer Kyle likes. And so just be aware, if you ask us to do your uh, premarital, Kyle's gonna say, well, tell me about that struggle. How does that look? And if you still kind of wiggle and worm and don't tell him, he's gonna go, so did you undo her bra? Did you, have you ever put your hand down her pants? I'm not kidding. These are the questions, this is how it goes. And so what did John say? John said, you know, Mr. Thompson, I'm not really comfortable answering that question. And Kyle said, well, that's okay, John. I, I understand. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to push you to do anything you don't want to do. But you need to know, by the way, that not answering that question makes me uncomfortable for you to continue dating my daughter. So it's your choice. You can t- take, your, take your pick. Um, you can answer the question, which will only tell me what I need to do to help you present her holy and blameless on that day. Guess what? John answered the question. And so my question for you is, are you prepared to answer the question God's gonna ask you? Because a day will come when you stand before him in his holiness. And he's gonna say, why should I let you into my heaven? If you're sitting here today right now and you are unsure what the answer is, or on a scale of one to 10, you're a five, you can be a 10 and we want you to be. And so find a leader today. She can show you the way, help prepare you to be 100% sure what the answer to that question should be. And that takes us to present yourself. 
because God's holy and we're not, none of us, neither was Israel. So here they are at the foot of the mountain and they're gonna learn some new things about their God. And I think the first is that he's not safe. But he is love, the perfect kind. Strange that we would juxtapose those two. Not safe and love. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back up. As Moses prepared to consecrate these people, he gave them very specific boundaries to protect them. Don't touch the mountain, not you, not your animal, or you're gonna die. I mean, my goodness, isn't that a little harsh? But, but this is a holy God, and he does this to, to give them the limit. And I gotta tell you, as I read it, I thought, I don't know enough about this. I don't. When God does come to them, he comes, how? In a thick cloud from a fire-breathing, earthquaking, thunder-booming mountain. What? I mean, to me, this sounds like Mordor and Lord of the Rings. I just, I think Hollywood doesn't make this up, this stuff up. They get it from the Bible. Just read your Bible and let your imagination run wild. It's frightening. Come on, I always wondered where the fear of God came from. Well, I I get it, I see it now, this is it. The people had the fear of God in them. Do you see that? My goodness. Other places in scripture, we find when men come face to face with God, they are struck in the same way. Moses did it at the burning bush. The, um, The Disciples will do it at the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul's gonna do it when he's on the road to Damascus. Fall face down in front of God. That's the response. Again, and yet we see that unlike other gods that might strike fear in people, God's holy and love, perfectly matching grace and truth. That's who he is. So I can go before him with no fear. And I think I do. But you see, that's because we live in the age of grace. And I think that somehow in this age of grace, we've taken God for granted. Yeah, we refer to, we refer to him, our culture does, like he's, a, he's the big guy, he's the man upstairs. No, no, he's not. He's God, almighty king of glory. He's got the power to move heaven and earth and does at times. And so we should treat him with the respect he deserves. And then I love in this the fact that God will meet Israel just like he does us right where they are. I, so comforting. I love, again, we know as a good student of Bible study, when God repeats things, you should take notice. He repeats third day, circle it, notice it. He is going to repeat, come down. Sometimes the word in your text may be descending. I found it four times in chapter 19. God comes down. He says, wants to come down in 9, 11, 18, 20. Go back, circle those because he wants you to get it. I'm gonna come to you. I'm coming. And he does this in an incredible way. Fast forward to your New Testament the most perfect illustration, an example for us of God coming down was Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say about himself? I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but at the will of him who sent me in John 3, 38. And then I love other pictures of God as a loving father. He tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. 
from James. Man, I, I, I think about the churches many of us grew up in. Again, I'm getting closer to 60, so I'm, I'm dating myself. But a lot of my generation and those before me grew up in churches where we were told, you got to straighten up, clean up, sit up, put up, shut up, pay up to be right with God. And nothing could be further from the truth. No, if I were in a court of law and an attorney right now, I would say, let me present exhibit A, David. He is a shepherd boy. He didn't look like much. He became a king who then committed adultery and murder. And what does God say about King David? He's what? Everybody say it. Come on. Who is he? A man after God's own heart. What? Are you kidding me? This guy? Yeah, why? How did he get that moniker? Because David knew the words, the sacrifices of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise or deny. David knew this. And when confronted with his sin, what did David do? He humbled himself. He repented from that sin. He acknowledged against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And he, he confessed it to God and to those that he needed to confess it to. So my question for you ladies is how would you characterize yourself as a humble woman today? You should be if you're his. You should know your weaknesses and be quick and ready to take them to God first and other people when you have, have wronged them. This is the heart God wants from us. And so I wanna commit today to be that kind of humble woman who knows who I am. I am not perfect. That's what David knew. I am not a perfect man, but I do know I come humbly before a perfect God. And that takes us to the last of our points today, and that is we should proclaim it ourselves because that's what you do when you're his child. We're now to the Ten Commandments, also in Greek called the Decalogue. Deca meaning ten, logos, the, the Greek word meaning words, ten words. Wow, well, they seem like a whole lot more than that to me, but there you go. Many people think of these things, the Ten Commandments, as the do's and don'ts of the Judeo Christian world, but that's not their purpose. And so what is the purpose of the law? To tell us what we can and can't do? No. The purpose of the law was to show, uh, was to show us, oh what? That we could, we type A, uh, performance-driven women could perfectly attain it? No. No. The purpose of the law was to show us exactly that we couldn't. That's the point of the law, is to show you here's a standard and I'm calling you to it, but the fact is you're not going to be able to do it. I've got 100% confidence standing in front of you that not one of you in this room has done this on these 10 things, not one. And I can say that because of this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point, has become guilty of it all in James 2.10. None of us is righteous in here. No, not one. That's the point. We all fall short. The law shows sin. It shows that we can't attain it, that none of us is good enough, which puts us all on equal grounds. We're all equally lost and in a desperate need of a savior. That is the point. 
And so scholars have analyzed these 10 commandments and put them in categories and groups and done all kinds of things. Well, I like these three, and so the three we're gonna look at is this. I think you can break these 10 commandments into three groups. Man to man, and those are the first three. I to myself, that's number four, the remember the Sabbath. And then man to man, those are the remaining six. So let's talk about them. Man to God, the first three talk about our relationship um, vertically with God. He's a sovereign, we understand from these jealous God who doesn't like idols, doesn't, doesn't want us to have them. He's worth respecting. And so don't take his name in vain. That's kind of the summary in my mind of those first three. Isn't it funny how people don't use the name of other gods in vain? Like, like uh, Buddha, Oh, Muhammad. I mean, we don't do that. But we do put a dam following God's name, and that does mean to hell, by the way, and it changes everything. Or we can take the name, the hallowed name of Jesus, and we can say, Jesus. And it changes the meaning of that name and the holiness intended in there. Or we can put both of his names together, like a kid. Remember when your daddy said, Jordan Brooks, that was like, okay, Jesus Christ. When we put his whole name together, it's even, it even ups it a whole nother, it's even worse. Come on, ladies, this isn't a form of worship and adoration. It's cursing God himself. And then there's the I to myself. I think that's what number four is all about, the Sabbath. And I'm glad you're gonna talk about it from your lesson. But the deal is, I think, that God made the Sabbath for man, not the other way around. God didn't need it. He did it to model, which is what parents do, to model for us. He gave us a day to rest and reflect on him. And if you want to learn more about it, just go back to Watermark's uh, JP, Jonathan Pacluda's series on rest. It's awesome, great, enough said. I don't need to say anything else about it. And then there's the man-to-man, those last six. Wow. I think they're all summed up in that last one, do not covet. It's really important to God because he repeats it twice here. There's an emphasis on it. Everything else before, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, they're simply the consequence of coveting. I want something that isn't mine and so left to myself, I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to get it. That's just, it's just a fact of the matter. Um, I married a great man, but I can be discouraged with something he does and I'm like, well, look at Susie's husband. He fixes everything in the house. What am I doing? I am lusting after something I don't have. And Kyle would say, Hire the man. Go pay for it. That's what, the, what, that's what the good old free enterprise system is all about. But what do I do? I look at someone else and think, she got the good deal and I got ripped off. That's what we do. It's ugly. And really, isn't coveting simply the opposite of contentment? And so the issue isn't that Kyle isn't a handyman. The issue is God didn't give me what I wanted at this moment. The deal is between me and... It, it comes out as me, between me and Kyle, but I got a problem with God and what he gave me. That's really what it is. I don't like my stuff. I don't like my house. I don't like my gifts. I want Nike's gift. I don't like my husband. I want him to be a fix-it man. I mean, come on, it goes on and on. And that's what causes us to war with our brothers and our sisters. I think it's really, really hard to be a parent. 
When my kids were preschoolers, there was a big, and I think it probably still is in place, a really big philosophy that had just come on the scene, and it was parenting, and you, you strove for first-time obedience. Now, I think obedience is good, and I really like first-time, too. I don't like to have to say it over and over, like, you know, go clean your room. I, I get it. But I found myself falling in to performance-based parenting. Look Mrs. So-and-so in the eyes, shake her by the hand, call her by name. I would demand as we're standing in front of Miss So-and-so. I realize these are good things, but I don't want my kids to do them because I've demanded them, because I've told them what to do and how to do it. No, I want them to do it because I want them to respect Mrs. So-and-so and out of the goodness of their heart and the relationship we have to know that that's a great way to show respect. My goodness, I want my kids to do things because I love them. And someone gave me a book and it really helped me. Gary Smalley, The Key to Your Child's Heart. If you've got preschoolers, this is a great one. And even Ted Tripp, Shepherding Your Child's Heart. Ladies, don't make the mistake of getting kids who obey perfectly what you've parented for them to do and whose heart is far from you. That will not go well when they become adults and you wonder, what happened? Why don't my kids, why don't we have that relationship? Well, I'll tell you. It's because you controlled every dot and tittle. Stop it. Connect to their heart, just like your Holy Father. That's what he wants from us. So have you found yourself performing for God as a child? Because that's what you are, his child. And it's so easy, but that kind of relationship, ladies, it'll wear you out. And that's exactly how the Israelites felt when Jesus burst through the scene and came on, came on. And I love that your lesson takes you to the heart, the intention of the law. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Scoot back to verse 17 in Matthew 5 and you'll find Jesus saying, I came not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. The law isn't bad, but he goes on then. What does he do? He takes, you shall not commit murder. And he goes, ah, but if you're angry, you shall not commit adultery. Ah, but if you lust, and my husband would say, that's 99.9% of every man man out there, then you've already done it in your heart. What was Jesus driving at? The heart. It begins here, ladies. Yeah, we can control ourselves, our, our, our actions, but he doesn't want your perfect parroting. He wants your heart today. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He is the one. She is the one that loves me. And she who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him or to her. So be reminded today, ladies, God is crazy in love with you. And on this Valentine's Day, he wants you to be his. He wants your heart. He wants your whole heart. And when you leave, you're gonna get one of those little hearts that was on my counter. And I'm gonna tell you now, I have my hands all over them. Don't eat it. That's not the point. Don't give it to your kid. That's not the point. The point is save it and be reminded God wants your heart, your whole heart. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you love us enough to pull us up short when we need it to remind us just doing the right thing isn't the right thing always. It's what comes out of my heart that should and does motivate me. And I wanna obey you. I wanna keep these commandments. I do. And so when I'm weak, help me. In your name I pray, amen.